Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of QuestionMark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we're really pleased to talk with Dave Foster, Cavion CEO, a psychologist, psychometrician, and recognized luminary in the measurement industry. David is credited with the first worldwide implementation of computerized adaptive testing and simulation-based performance testing. With other industry colleagues, he founded Cavion in 2003, the industry's first test security company. David has also served on numerous boards and committees in the testing field. He's a past president of the Association of Test Publishers, ATP, has served on this Certification Accreditation Committee and Board of Directors for the American National Standards Institute. David holds a PhD in Experimental Psychology from BYU and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in Psychobiology at Florida State University. After 37 years in the testing industry, Dr. Foston shows no evidence of slowing down. And no doubt, Dave, you've got a few more contributions to make. Welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's start off, Dave, by asking you how you got into assessment. It's a great question. It was mostly luck. I had just finished my postdoctoral fellowship in 1982. I was 32 years of age and was having a hard time getting a job. At that time, I got a call from a friend of mine at Brigham Young University. He had begun a project that involved funding from IBM and a local company called YCAT. And they had built a mainframe-based system for K-12 to to, uh, teach basic subjects to students. It, however, had no assessment piece. And so I was getting a call and uh, my colleague, he asked, what do you know about testing? And I said, I really don't know anything about testing, but I can learn. And I did accept the position and I quickly gathered a bunch of textbooks on the topic and began to learn. And I took over a project management role in that company to help build computerized assessments for these uh, computerized courses. And that's kind of what switched my career and started me on a new path, a path which I've now been on for 37 years. It was a wonderful, serendipitous kind of change in my life and never have looked back. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your career and the different companies you've worked with over the years? Sure, sure. Well, YCAT lasted for a few years, but it was based on mainframes and the world of technology was changing networking systems linking microcomputers were becoming more popular. This was at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. And I was hired by a company, uh, an IT company called Novell. They had uh, networking software that was very popular. And they came upon the idea to certify engineers, administrators, and other roles using their products so that they could sell more products around the world. So they decided to build this certification program, and as everyone knows, it's heavily dependent on testing. They didn't know much about testing, and I was, this was a Utah company, I was local, and they hired me to help design and build their certification exams. That was in 1990, and I stayed with Novell for seven years, and it was a very wonderful time period. They were very tolerant, even accepting of innovation. So we were able to do a lot of new things as we were building network systems that span the globe. 
we were dealing with language, uh, with translations of the exams, with new features in the exams, adaptive testing and simulations and dual language exams and anything we needed to solve particular testing problems at the time, we devised solutions. And we worked with companies like now known as Prometric and Pearson View and helped them get established in the industry. And they, they would use Novell's learning centers, learning training centers around the world as testing centers. So it was an exciting time. That lasted until 1997, at which time I left Novell and began a company. My first shot at, at starting something new, and we called it Galton Technologies. And the way I understand it, Novell were really the pioneers in, in computer certification, and most of what all the different companies do in computer certification is based on what you and Novell uh, did back then. Yeah, absolutely. It was the ability to take then what was paper-based tests and allow them to be computerized and use all the advantages of that technology and be able to administer them around the world. We used modem technology to send tests all over the world and to retrieve the results. And that happily went away when the internet began to be used for those tasks. But it was, it was the beginning of, uh, I think, the really widespread computerization of testing. Yeah. So tell us about Galton. Well, Galton was intended to provide uh, test development services, which I did for Novell, to all the other IT certification programs. It wasn't limited to the IT certification world, but those were the main uh, clients of Galton at the time. And they all wanted to know how to build computerized tests, how to make them adaptive, how to collect the data, how to analyze the data. So that was a, um, a large market. It was a good market because, again, like Novell, they were very accepting of innovative technologies in, in testing. So Galton was sold in uh, just after the turn of the century. And in 2003, I needed a, a new opportunity. And so I left Galton Technologies and I uh, went looking for a new opportunity. And round about there, was it, was that when you founded Cavion? Yeah, so it was. Uh, John Cavion, I recognized, and I'm not sure why or how I recognized it, but test security was going to be more important as time goes on. It was important at the time, obviously, but with new technologies being used for testing and new technology being used to commit test fraud, it was clear to me that test security was going to play a bigger role in all of our lives uh, going forward. So I and a few colleagues um, began Cavion. And Cavion has as a Latin root cavio, which means to warn, to prepare, to protect. And so it seemed like a fitting name. I just simply added an N on the end and created the word Cavion. But it was, um, again, probably lucky, but it was an undeveloped area. Security was being mainly managed by vendors and proctoring. People relied on, on proctoring basically for all their security. There were new threats, however. Even today, there are threats coming up all the time that uh, proctors are not able to detect, to deal with. And, um, and so we needed more than just that. There needed to be more services, more products, more technology uh, to help in the um, security world as it helped in the testing world in general. Cavion was immediately had found an interested market. Breaches were occurring all the time, and anytime someone had a breach, and if they knew about us, we would get a call asking for help. That's pretty much the way it's been for the last 16 years as well. The first few years, it was tough going in terms of financial 
results, we lost money for the first six years and have been profitable for the last 10. Maybe that's the way new companies should go. But it was it was hard. Uh, those first few years were difficult. No, oh, I could relate to that. Uh, so I mean, Cavion obviously is now very well, very well respected in in test security. Could, could we move on to talking a little bit about testing security and what the key issues are? If you're setting up a testing program, how should you think about security? Well, and just at a high level, John. Um, we've experienced in the last year or so uh, some public scandals. The most notable one, and it's still reverberating, is the Varsity Blues uh, scandal with um, the ACT and the SAT and the ability for uh, well-to-do parents to get their children into the colleges they would like. Those don't help. They lead to a lack of trust in testing in general. Why do these scandals occur? Why can't we stop them? Why can't we prevent them? And that's not good. It's not good for our industry to be unable to to stop these kinds of issues. Plus, even if the scandal isn't public or known about, security problems are a threat to our valid use of test scores. The whole purpose of testing is to obtain test scores you can trust and you can use to certify someone, to allow someone to be admitted to a college, to give someone a license to practice in their in the field they've chosen. Well, we can't use those validly. I guess the real problem there is that even scores that are produced honestly are still suspect because scores around them are. So the, the entire set of test scores, and, and often an organization will cancel all the test scores, even though there are only a few that were definitely a result of cheating. Plus, we have to remember Number two, the cheaters and thieves, people that steal the content, they are using new technology. They adopt it much more quickly than we do. We tend to rely on older solutions like proctoring, and some of that just isn't effective against the new technologies used by cheaters and thieves. So I would say those are the major high-level issues, and test security is, of course, right at the heart of So I know as part of the International Test Commission, you've been one of the leaders of coming up with their security guidelines. Do you think those are helpful reading for for people who are getting started in this space or want to learn more about test security? Absolutely. The document that is being written and reviewed and processed now provides the basic fundamentals of security and then just a host of good advice, guidelines, best practices of, of how to conduct test security efforts. So yeah, the guidelines are are wonderful. They start out by introducing two types of threats. One thing nice about security are the only two types of general threats that program has to be concerned about. One is theft. That is, people can steal your test easily today. So you have to worry about theft. And there are different ways to do that, but not many. You capture it with a digital camera, you memorize, you can record it on a, on a microphone on a hidden device. So there are many, there are many ways to, to steal content, but they are easy to do and they are low risk. They have low risk of being detected. And so thieves, pirates, whatever you want to call them, can steal the tests almost the minute the test is, is published and given to the first test taker. So that's, that's a serious problem. The other type of threat is cheating. This is defined not as an attempt to capture content, but as a way to improve a test score. Cheaters always have as the goal to get a higher score than they would normally earn. There are, again, a limited number of ways to cheat. Cheat sheets, the old tr- tried and true ways are still there. You write on your hand or you... Uh, there are many ways to <laughs> access some inappropriate 
material during the test. Or you could get someone to take the test for you. Someone who's better at the information on the test than you are. Hire them. There are services out there. Or you can just get a friend you trust. So it's nice to that we have two basic types of threats. You want to stop the theft and you want to stop cheating. And within those, there are very few ways to deal with. So you can come up with solutions much easier because you have a scheme that is organized and fairly limited. And I think it's easy actually to solve the security issues to deal with these threats than we usually use. It's, just, it's easier than we do it today. And what are some of the key measures that you recommend people take if they're running a testing program to reduce the threats? I mean, obviously, it must vary between different kinds of programs, but what are some of the key things that people should do? Well, they do vary. Uh, security solutions for security are the same, regardless of the testing program, but let's let's expand that a little bit. Sure. Transportation security, such as, as that that occurs when you... Uh, take a plane somewhere, or how your car is protected, seat belts and brakes, and, or your home, or, or cybersecurity, which we hear all about. The principles of security are the same, and they are to prevent it if you can, if you can't, to detect it and do something about it. And the third is to deter people from trying to breach your security. Those are the same regardless of the industry, regardless of the type of problems of security, and so they're certainly the same within our industry. For the past decades, maybe centuries, detection has been our go-to methodology. Let's put in place something to find someone who's cheating or stop someone who's trying to capture the material with a cell phone. So the what we've used for so many decades is detection. And when we detect something, we have protocols in place to deal with it. If a proctor sees someone pull out a camera, and pull out their phone to take a picture of the screen. The proctor has been trained in, in what to do about that. Detection also occurs when we do a statistical analysis of results called data forensics, and we can find unusual patterns and evidence that might be cheating or theft even as we look at data. But also web monitoring. The web is a very active place for people to share content, whether just casually in chat rooms or more formally in brain dump sites. So you want to be able to detect when your items appear on the web. So that's all detection. And we have to keep it. It's something you have to do because the threats can't always be prevented. But more recently, the two other solutions or sets of solutions have become more apparent and more obvious and maybe just what is needed for the long term. And the first is of that is prevention. Stop. Don't allow cheating or theft to impact. It's not a detection issue. It's simply making it impossible. And with the use of technology today, most security threats can actually be prevented. So that's good news. And the, the other good news is that um, the third set of solutions is, is deterrence. That is simply, you can simply make people not want to cheat or steal your content by different messages you provide them. It's all about communication. You can tell them, for example, what the rules are. You can tell them what will happen if the rules are broken. You can tell them about what you have in place to detect fraud or prevent it. And all of those are messages that will convince most test takers and most others that are intent on committing fraud against the program to to not do it because they're going to be afraid of getting caught and the, of the sanctions that might happen. So that that needs to be used more deterrence than it has in the past and needs to be used in a more professional way, planned way. 
Okay, so those are the solutions I would certainly recommend. That makes good sense. Could we talk a little bit about um, statistics and how they can be used to uh, help identify test fraud, particularly this question mark and caveat of uh, uh, just announced a partnership in in this area of forensics analysis. But I think it's it's interesting generally. How can you identify statistically that there might be anomalies which could be cheating? Sure. Now, um, as I said, data forensics is a type of detection. What you're what you're trying to find is people that have cheated, or at least there's evidence that it might be cheating. And so it's a it's a it's a method that's been around for decades, and it's fairly well understood. It's easy to apply sound statistical techniques and principles with decision rules. So you get a set of data, and you know what normal responding these are, these data come from from the test, the response data, you how they answered each question, how the, how long it took, and you you have them in this database, and you analyze them for unusual responding. So most of the time, for example, someone with low ability is not able to answer the difficult questions well. And if you find out that a person of low ability is answering the most difficult questions really well and really quickly, then that's an, an anomaly. That's an unusual pattern. And so that's flagged. And if you get a number of those flags in a classroom or that same person shows that same pattern on a number of tests, uh, you can be you become much more confident in making decisions based on that unusual responding. It may not be cheating. could be could be something else. It could be in the case of doing poorly on a test, it could be just illness or or you only you know the person knows one or two questions but not the rest you know as pre-knowledge but not the rest of them. And so you can't or shouldn't really call it cheating, but you can certainly call it unusual and, untrustworthy in the sense of not wanting to use that score to make a decision. And you can then either not make a decision or if the score has already led to a decision, you could retract the decision. So there are some decisions that are routinely made based on uh, the statistical analysis of, of test results. And some of the things they're looking for are similarities between two test takers or three or a group of test takers. If they all have the same kind of responding, in other words, they get the correct answer the same way, and the similarity is more than you would expect from classmates or candidates taking the test around the same time. I mentioned unusual responding and unusual latencies. That latencies means that if they're doing really well, but answering the question so quickly that probably didn't even have time to read them, it may be a issue. And, and then finally, to detect proxy test takers. How do you know if someone is taking a test for someone else? And that can be, the data forensics can look at that as well and can detect detect when that's occurring. So those are different types of patterns that are being looked for in a data forensic analysis. And when when you get the data forensics back and you see an anomaly, how typically does a testing organization deal with that? Because obviously it's a probability that somebody's uh, committed fraud, but perhaps not a hundred percent guarantee. You know, it, uh, John, it should be kind of an automatic process when when you detect something, and this just isn't in testing, but in every area where there's security, the response is automatic. It's it's more. It's even reactive in the sense of how quickly it should occur. The rules are in place. 
if this happens, this is what you do. You don't put a committee together and you say, what should we do about this? The rules are different. If, if the statistical anomaly passes a threshold, this is the response. And for example, it could be just canceling the score. And uh, making, them do, making them do a retake, for example. Yeah, make them do a retake. And yeah, exactly. Or start an investigation if it's serious enough. Or ban them from the program. The reactions that occur in any kind of detection system have to be pre-planned. And uh, there's no time or even reason to meet and make a decision, look at the results. It's, it should be an, a more or less an automatic process unless the result was so new and unusual that, that there is no a pre-planned response to it. So basically put together a security plan and and execute it and think about it in advance rather than reacting on the fly. Yeah. In fact, it's typically called a security incident response plan. That's a part of the bigger security plan. But in, within that is your incident response plan. And it's it's all planned. Now, what do you do if you find something on the web? Uh, what if you what if what if a proctor sees someone they think is cheating? What if the data forensics comes up with an anomalous result, and every single detection like that is followed by a uh, a well thought out reaction? So I mean, it sounds like one of the key things that you suggest organizations ought to do is to come up with that both uh, incident response plan and also the general security plan, and to think about things ahead. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You, you do you need that plan it's it's just too late or too prone to errors if you if you always have to make those mistakes when you're surprised yeah yeah uh, no it just, just happened you, you just you know you, you don't even know how to think about it so more and more organizations are creating security plans and uh, have have good plans for dealing with incidents. Oh, that, that sounds good. I'd love to get some advice. So one of the purposes of this podcast series is to get people good advice about what they should be doing in testing. What what kind of advice would you really want to highlight for somebody who wants to improve their security or otherwise improve their testing? You're one of the real gurus and uh, heroes of the industry. What is it that you think people should do more than they do at the moment or somebody new to testing should start doing? You know, these are obviously are, are high level. You, you mentioned the security plan. That's the first thing we mention in the uh, ATP and ITC guidelines. So get a, get a plan put together and there are the, the guidelines itself points out the different areas and sections of that uh, security plan that should be included. But there are, there are some other things that I think are really important today. And the, the first one of the, uh, on the list is to design items and tests to protect themselves. Technology today is so amazing, and we can, we can actually design tests to make it really hard, if not impossible, to steal and to cheat on. So learn about and change kind of from the traditional way we test today and, and start including more innovative types of items and tests specifically to prevent uh, security problems. So that's first one. Let's look into those. And that means that means some change. You gotta you gotta think differently about your tests. Um, they'll still measure the same, but they will protect. The second one is to have someone on staff who's an expert in security. 
there there's a lot of material to train people, but you need someone on staff that implements the plan, maybe gets the plan built, and then uh, is is able to manage the security efforts within an organization. That's again happening more and more. There are probably many dozens of, of security experts now in place in different uh, in different high stakes testing programs. So as opposed to pretty much zero, one maybe or two when we when we began Galt and I mean sorry caveat. Uh, the, th- the third is to take responsibility for security. For for so long now, programs have ignored this aspect and allowed a vendor, their test administration vendor in particular, to take care of it. So they didn't even have to think about it until a breach occurs, of course. So understanding that vendors, even Cavion, is is working for the program, for you. And um, the ultimate responsibility for a security breach or for a bad, badly designed and administered exam lies with the program. And uh, so that's that's been a tough thing. And security has been one thing to shunt off pretty easily to a vendor for a century at least. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's got to change. Programs have to take responsibility for security and, and really get the best of vendors that will do what they ask them to do to, to help with their security. So those are the three things in, in, plus the security plan that I would recommend. So I mean, that sounds really useful. So I think you're saying uh, put together a security plan, think about innovative item types that can be uh, productive for for security. Don't just rely on your vendor for security, but um, think of it as a partnership whereby you and the vendor are working together and have somebody on your team who takes uh, security and owns security. Have I summarized that that what that well? Yes. Oh, you know, if if someone if a program did those things at that high level, they would have very few problems at the at the actual security level where where the breaches occur. I mean, be many fewer if maybe gone completely. That sounds really good, and I love the way you're addressing it at a high level because I think then everything at the lower level, all the technical details and things, all all flow from that. And if anybody wants to look at the International Test Commission guidelines, uh, they're available on the web. If you search for International Test Commission security guidelines, I believe you'll find them, and uh, they're an excellent document. And uh, Dave, I think you led you led their production, I, I believe. I did. Yeah. Well, look, it, and you're right. It is it is a very good uh, source source document for resource document for anyone. Hmm. Well, look, I really appreciate this conversation, and I hope that uh, listeners do as well. There's a lot of really good uh, experience you've had and a lot of lot of value there. And uh, so I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dave. You're very welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at questionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion. Mm-hmm.